Well, I'm glad to see you here today, uh, particularly on time. It's always fun to see who shows up at 11 o'clock on this Sunday each year. I'm glad you remembered to spring ahead. And uh, it always takes a little something extra to uh, get up and go full speed when you, you miss that hour of sleep. So I thought just uh, in that vein of, of just wanting to be offer you an extra word of encouragement for being here, being on time. I thought prior to the message, I'd just offer you a couple of, of words that have nothing to do with the message they're just for your benefit. So uh, just take these for what it's worth. A couple of things that I ran across this week that, you know, you ever listen to like John Tesh radio mixed in with the music? He's just going to give you some extra little tidbits. Well, here's your John Tesh extra little tidbits today that just didn't come from, from John. The first one is this. Ladies, it's for you. You know how you worry and fret all the time about the scale and the number on the scale? Just came across this this week. A recent study has found that women who carry a little extra weight live longer than the men who mention it. It's true. It is true. Guys, you may want to take note of that as well. The other one is, uh, it just came under the heading of hormone guide, so you just kind of take that part for what it's worth. Apply it as needed. But I'm going to just speak to four different uh, situations. And men, this is for us. This is a bit of a guide for us to think before we speak. First, I'm going to share with you the thing that we might be prone to say that is the dangerous thing to say. And then I'm going to offer you a better thing you could have said. And then I'm going to offer you the safest thing that you could say. All right? You got that? All right. First of all, you'll recognize the situation. The dangerous thing to say. What's for dinner? The safer thing to say. Can I help you with dinner? The safest thing to say. Where would you like to go for dinner? Everybody knows that. Second one, the dangerous thing to say, what are you so worked up about? Safer thing to say, could we be overreacting? Safest thing to say, here's my paycheck. Third one, dangerous thing to say, should you be eating that? Yeah, you know better. Safer thing to say, you know there are a lot of apples left. Safest thing to say, can I get you a piece of chocolate to go with that? And the final one, the dangerous thing to say, what did you do all day? Safer thing to say, I hope you didn't overdo it today. Safest thing to say, I've always loved you in that robe. No extra charge for those. Nothing to do with the sermon, but uh, enjoy. Today, I'm excited about the message for the day. It is a word of encouragement and of hope, and uh, it's one that I hope is going to make a difference. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be looking at the scriptures. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me there. We're in a series where we're talking about being distinctly Christian, that we as followers of Jesus, we ought to stand out from the world. When people look at our lives, they should be able to recognize that there's something different about us. And I know when we think about being distinctly Christian that many times that calls to mind a bunch of the things that we have to not do so that we look Christian or behave Christian. You know the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. Because I'm a Christian, I don't sleep around. Because I'm a Christian, I don't swear. Because I'm a Christian, I don't go to bad movies or don't go partying or whatever. And it's easy for all that to be defined in terms of all the, the bad stuff we don't do because we're Christian. And not that we should avoid living that kind of life. There are things we certainly ought to be careful to avoid. But 
there ought to be more to it than that. And today we want to talk about one of those things that really should define and mark us as followers of Jesus on the positive side. And that is that we should be people who possess a faith that really does move mountains. That brings about miraculous change in the world around us and in the lives of the people that we care about. And so we're going to look together at one of the strangest stories in all of the New Testament and then a really powerful teaching that came out of that. In Mark chapter 12, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse 12. And uh, I'll just tell you that the, the setting here is it's Holy Week. So we'll be diving into the same section of Scripture next Sunday, uh, since next Sunday's Palm Sunday. But we're going to get a, a one-week head start in this little uh, time frame here. Uh, Palm Sunday has just happened. Jesus comes in to the holy city with everybody you know cheering and laying down their, their coats and palm branches and he's gone in and surveyed everything and he's seen the temple and he's making a plan for what he's going to do but he leaves on sunday night and he travels outside of jerusalem to where he would stay through most of that week he would spend the nights in bethany and he would come back and forth just the short distance into the holy city and so on what is apparently monday morning we pick up the story monday morning of holy week in verse 12 The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. It's it's Passover week. It's springtime. And so the fig tree would have been covered in leaves, but it should have only been covered in just little green figs. And there was nothing there for him to eat. And so then Jesus said to the tree... May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. And then he went on. And he went on into the city. And there's the whole scene of Jesus cleansing the temple. Him clearing everybody out. We'll look at that next week. And then he goes back that night to Bethany. And so then the next morning, what's apparently Tuesday morning, we pick up the story in verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus... Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now that is one of the strangest little stories that you'll ever find in the New Testament, isn't it? It is pretty much without question the most peculiar story that is ever told of Jesus in the Bible. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, think about what has just unfolded in this passage. Jesus is headed over to Jerusalem. Now, it's pretty safe to say he has already got a burr in his saddle. He's gone in and surveyed the, the situation, but because it's so late in the day, he decides, I'm going to wait and come back and do what I need to do tomorrow when I've got all day to do it. He knows he's fixing to wreak havoc and bring things back closer to where they're supposed to be in the temple. And, oh, by the way, part of the reason he waited was so he could go and plait a whip. There's a side of Jesus you don't often think about. And so, you know... You can just imagine his mindset as he heads out this morning. You ever have those days where you know that you've got to do something that's really hard? I mean, like if you're a manager or, or a business leader where you know you've got a personnel issue where you're going to have to really kind of come down on something. And, and you just, 
You sort of go into the work day that day knowing that there's going to be some hard stuff coming and you just got to have your game face on for that. You know, you wonder if Jesus is sort of in that mindset. He's got a whip in his hand. So this is not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild kind of scene as he's marching to the city and he's hungry. That doesn't help the situation at all, does it? You know, when you're already kind of worked up and you're hungry too and he sees a fig tree and he's like, I could use something to eat. And he goes up to the fig tree. And it's really kind of a peculiar thing. Mark make, now Matthew and Mark both point out this story. It's interesting that two gospel writers thought that this strange little tale was, was worth retelling. He goes up to the tree, even though it's not the season for figs. And who knows? Maybe Jesus is so focused on the task ahead that he's not really thinking about, hmm, is it time to harvest figs? But it's weeks away from the fig harvest. And he goes up. And there's nothing on there but leaves. There's not even the little green ones that should be on there. And in that moment, I mean, we don't really know. We don't know if this is some of the spillover from him, what he's fixing to do in Jerusalem. But in that moment, he just looks at it and says, may you never bear fruit again. Nobody's going to ever eat fruit off of you again. And he just, he never really seems to break stride hardly. And he marches on into the city. And the disciples, they all heard it. But it's kind of like, okay, that was weird. And, And they go into the city with him. A lot of crazy stuff happens in the next few hours. They go home that night. They've got plenty to talk about. The fig tree is far from the top of the list of things to talk about after what they've seen in Jerusalem. But the next day, as they're marching back into Jerusalem, and I'm sure they're wondering what in the world are we going to find when we get there. And the first thing that they find on their way out of Bethany is the fig tree. And it looks like somebody has sprayed Roundup all over it during the night. The sucker has died overnight. And Peter goes, hey, Jesus, look, the fig tree that you spoke to yesterday that you cursed. That thing has withered from the roots up. And out of that, Jesus gives a really profound teaching on what we declare, pray, and do in faith. Now, it, it's kind of weird when you begin to read commentaries about this story, and it always frustrates me how, how writers feel like they need to protect the reputation of Jesus. I was reading one of my favorite commentary writers this week on this story, and he just immediately began to explain away how Jesus would have never done this. This was self-serving. This is totally out of character with Jesus. Somehow this story must not be what actually happened on that day. And I'm thinking, would you just get over yourself? We don't have to defend Jesus. Jesus has authority to bless what he wants to bless and to curse what he wants to curse. And if he wants to use a fig tree to make a point, he's the God of all creation. He can do that. And it's okay. On this particular day, Jesus curses the tree. And it, it, again, you know, commentators, they'll just write on and on about how, well, Jesus was making a point that this fig tree represented Jerusalem. And because Jerusalem was not bearing any fruit, there was a curse that was about to come down on it. Fine, whatever. If you want to turn it into that, have fun with it. I think quite simply, Jesus was realizing my time is incredibly short. He's two days from being arrested and tortured. He's three days away from being murdered. His time with the disciples is just about to run out. The last sand is dripping through the hourglass. He knows time is about up. And here in this moment, in this moment of frustration, he speaks. He uses the authority that he has. And he's going to use that as an opportunity to show his disciples this very important principle that they still have not grasped yet about the authority and the power that they carry. And he uses a fig tree to do it. 
It's one of the most significant teachings about the lives that we live as believers. Four things that I want you to notice about what happens in this story and what we need to learn from Jesus' teaching here. And the first one is this. That like a key in a locked door, our faith is what unleashes God's power. Jesus said, have faith in God. Say that with me. Have faith in God. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in our capacity to muster world-changing faith. Our faith is in God and in God's power. And he says, I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, go fall into the sea. And if you have no doubts in your mind and believe that what you say will happen, God will do it for you. Now, I used to read that text for years and think, what a peculiar thing to say. Say to this mountain, go be cast into the sea. I used to wonder, why would you want a mountain thrown into the sea? I failed to appreciate that in Jesus' day, this particular phrase was very commonly used among the teachers of his day. People, upon hearing that phrase, tell this mountain, be removed. Tell this mountain, be cast into the sea. That that was just a very common way for teachers of the day to speak of overcoming the greatest obstacle in your life. So whatever the biggest thing is that's in front of you, that is an immovable object that stands in the way of you enjoying what you feel like you need to enjoy, you having what you need to have, whether it's an illness or a disability or a financial setback, whatever the biggest obstacle is in your life, that the, the common way of saying that in the teaching of the day was to speak of it as the mountain in your life that you speak to to be removed, to be cast into the sea. And so when Jesus is saying this to his disciples, it would have very quickly for them called to mind not a picture of, oh, which mountain are we looking at? But it would have called to mind the issue of what is the greatest obstacle in your life that stands before you and that if you learn to operate in the realm of faith, you can say to that obstacle, be moved, get out of the way, be cast into the depths of the sea. And Jesus said, it will happen if you do this in faith. And he goes on to say, so I tell you, believe that you have received the things that you ask for in prayer and God will give them to you. The picture that comes to mind as I read this passage is of a great door. I don't mean a door that would fit on your house. I mean more like a a door that you would see on the side of a giant medieval castle. A door that would be 10 or 20 times the size of any front door on any home. And it's going to be that much thicker just as it is that much taller and, and wider. It's a door that weighs tons. It's a door that no human hands could ever hope to move. It's that that vast of a door. That door stands before you. The door is closed. It's not only closed, but the door is locked. And that door represents the greatest obstacle that is before you right now. I want you to pause and think about that for a minute. What is the greatest challenge, the greatest obstacle, the greatest problem that stands before you now? That's the door that's before you. Your strength will never move that door. When you think about what your specific obstacle is, you probably say, yeah, I get that. I've known that for a long time. I I can't fix this. I can't heal this. I can't repair this. Okay, you got that door real, real clear in your mind? It's a heavy door. It's a locked door. Here's the heart of what Jesus is teaching. It's going to take two people for that door to swing wide open. 
It's going to take God and his power to open the door, but God will not unleash his power to swing wide that door until you, as his partner, bring your part to bear. And that is, you've got to bring the key that unlocks that door, and the key is your faith. Now, let's be real clear about this. It is not because God lacks anything. To do what he wants to do in your situation. To do what you long for him to do in your situation. It's not that God is going, oh, if I only had your help, I could do that. No, it's not that at all. But understand this. This is a huge part of operating in what God wants us to operate in. Living in the realm of of the miraculous. Living in kingdom power. You need to understand that God is very much committed to raising up sons and daughters who fully represent him. In the world, in time, and for eternity. And in doing that, he has determined that in most situations, he's going to have a role to play, and we're going to have a role to play. And only together will his will be accomplished. Not because he's shorthanded, or because his power is running out. Not at all. But because he is raising us up to participate in kingdom life, to participate in appropriately handling his authority, administering his justice, bringing his resources to bear, bringing his power to bear in every situation. And in doing that, right here in this lifetime, way short of eternity, he is in the process of teaching us to partner with him in the accomplishing of his will. And what that essentially boils down to is God is saying, I will happily Swing wide that door. You can count on it. It's going to be my shoulder that's going to be thrust into that door. And it will swing wide open. But not until you turn the lock. And it is your faith that is the key that will turn the lock. And when that happens, God is then ready to unleash his power to make things happen. When you think about, well, how does my faith have anything to do with this? God is committed to teaching us to operate in the realm of his power, his authority, and complete faith in what he will do. And so we've each got to do our part in this. Now I want to be real clear when he talks about believing him to do the impossible. What he is saying and what he's not saying. He is not saying that we bring some half-hearted faith that says, Well, Lord, I'm asking you to do this. I'm hoping you'll do this. Not really expecting you to. But I believe you could do this. I do believe that you're able to do this. And I'm going to ask, though I'm not saying, and I'm thinking, you're probably not going to, but I'm going to say the right thing. Lord, if it be your will, would you let this happen? Lord, if it be your will, would you heal? Lord, if it be your will, would you provide what's needed here? Which is usually our way of going, God, I'm not really expecting you to do it, so I'm going to give you an out. You know what I'm talking about? Like we're too afraid to say in faith, God, I actually expect you to respond. I believe that you're going to demonstrate your power to move and to make things happen. And so since we don't really think that's going to happen, we say, Lord... If it be your will. I want to tell you, the prayer of doubt is the prayer that says, I believe God can. The prayer of faith is the prayer that says, I believe God will. And in case that sounds like, "Eh, I'm not sure whether to believe that or not, let me remind you what Hebrews 11.1 says. Faith 
is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. Let's say that again. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. That's what faith is all about. It is believing God for what you cannot see with your eyes just yet. And faith, the prayer of faith, is the prayer that says, no, I don't see it. I don't see anything even moving in that direction yet. But I believe, I believe in the God who is able. I don't just believe that God is able. I believe that God will. And I am declaring it aloud. I believe God is about to move. I believe that God is about to move in my child's life. I believe that God is about to move in my marriage. I believe that God is about to perform a miracle of healing here. I believe that God is about to act. That's a prayer of faith. And Jesus says, when you pray that, when you speak that, and you don't sit there and go, well, he might, he could, but I don't know. When you do that, you take all the power out of that. Have you ever gone to unlock a a door, and you put in a key that looks like the right key? It's shaped the right way, and it just slides in the door just so smoothly. But then when you go to turn it, it's completely frozen because you got the wrong key. My, the, my key to my house and my key to the church, they look just alike. They're the same kind of key. And neither one will open the opposite door, I know, because I've tried enough times. It's frustrating, isn't it? You slide it in, it fits, but it just won't turn. The prayer that says, God, if it be your will, would you just let this happen? It sounds nice. It's like the wrong key that slides right in the door. But it will not release the lock so that the door will open. And that's what that kind of prayer does. Oh, it slides off your lips just as smooth as a key that fits. But it will not turn the lock. Now, I know, I know because this is a familiar topic. For those of us who've prayed a thousand times, Lord, if it be your will, as our way of giving God an out. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus prayed that. Yes, he did. And to my recollection, in the Gospels, I can't think of but one time he prayed that. And it was when he prayed something that wasn't the will of God. Are you saying Jesus prayed something that wasn't the will of God? Absolutely I am. Well, to learn something from that. You remember when Jesus prayed that prayer? What did Jesus pray about that he said, Lord, if it be your will? What was the cup? The cross. Jesus knew that he had to go to the cross. He had been saying for six months without any thing hidden about it. I'm about to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put on trial. And I'm going to be hung on a cross. I'm going to die. And I'm going to be raised from the dead three days later. He knew that this was the will of God. But when it got down to time for that, it just felt like an overwhelming burden. And he did what is perfectly appropriate for us to do in prayer. He said exactly what what was on his heart to the Father. Lord... If there is any other way, if there is any way that I can avoid having to take the sin of the world and and die this kind of death, please take this away. But not my will, but yours. Jesus understood, even in the saying of that, I'm asking for something that I don't think is your will, and ultimately I'm yielding my will to yours. So sure, there's a time and place where when you're praying and you really don't have any idea whether what you're asking for is in line with what God wants, there can be a time and place where you just honestly go, Lord, I don't know what you're wanting to do here. I don't know what the right thing is. I'm asking you for this, but I get I may not be asking for the right thing. 
Jesus knew that what he was praying for didn't line up with the will of God that had been revealed to him. It doesn't make it sinful that he was praying that. It just makes it an honest prayer. But that is the, not the model for how to pray in Jesus' life, right? I mean, wouldn't you agree? Any other time that Jesus is praying, and oftentimes by the time he gets into the situation, it's not so much a prayer as it is just a declaration of what's going to happen. Which, by the way, is what he calls us to do here. To speak in faith. I would point out that the big stumbling block that we have here, and, and, and I, I get it. I really do understand this. That what I'm talking about today, while there's a side of us that wants to embrace this, that wants to go, yes, I want that, I want all of that, I want that to define how I live my life. And yet there is another part in us that goes, there's something about this that doesn't work. Or it doesn't work for me. And you know why you feel that way, don't you? Because of all the times that you prayed and nothing happened, right? Oh, come on. Everybody's looking at me like, I ain't shaking my head. You know what I'm talking about. Important things have happened in your life or in the lives of the people that you cared about. And there have been situations where you prayed and you prayed earnestly and what you asked for didn't happen, right? So guess what the devil wants to do with that? He wants to remind you again and again and again of that situation and tell you, you see, it doesn't work. God doesn't listen to your prayers, all this mumbo-jumbo about faith and the prayer of faith. It doesn't work, so don't waste your time doing it because you remember when you tried that and it didn't work. Didn't feel so good, did it? That's half of the devil's work. You know what the other half of his work is in this regard, in regard to this teaching? It is to negate every time that you've ever prayed in faith and God acted in response and did what you asked for. And you know what the devil said every time that happened? You didn't have anything to do with that. Would have happened anyway. It was just the natural thing that was already going to happen. It was totally coincidental. And you know it was because of all those other times that you prayed and nothing ever happened. So you know your prayer had nothing to do with it. He's busy all the time trying to negate in your mind the fact that your prayers and your faith unlocked the door. It unleashed the, the power of God and God moved. And the devil said, eh, you had nothing to do with it. Just coincidence. Now, it's worth understanding that using this analogy of the locked door and the key of faith, understand there are three different possibilities whenever you face that locked door. In the first scenario, there are those situations in life where the truth of the matter is, it is so important for that door to swing open that it is going to swing open whether you pray or not and whether you believe or not. God has decreed this needs to happen and I'm going to make that door swing open whether it's locked or not. God's shoulder can press through any door. How many of you believe that? You better know it can. There are going to be times where in spite of our lack of faith or our failure to pray, God is going to make it happen. Praise God for it. Because he's just a good God and he said this is too critical. It has to happen. And God's going to do it regardless of whether we prayed or believed. I'm so glad that he does. There is another scenario. And this is the one that we hate. This is the one that we struggle with. And that is there are times where the door is closed. It is locked. And we come and we do our dead level best to bring faith into the equation. We pray in faith. We trust God. We, we do everything we can to put the key in the lock and turn it. 
And for reasons that we do not understand in the moment, God will not unleash his power to swing wide that door. He will not remove the obstacle. He will not heal the sickness. He will not repair the relationship. For some reason, God has determined that no matter how we pray and how much we believe, this is something that is not going to happen. Now, it's amazing how much of the time you get some months or years down the road and you look back and go, wow, at the time I was so sure that that's what needed to happen. And yet I see now God had a purpose for letting that happen the way that it did. Sometimes we see that with clarity and other times we look back and go, to this day I don't understand why. I I prayed, I believed God, I trusted God with that. And for some reason it was one of those situations the door was not going to move Just as God has predetermined that some doors he's going to open no matter what, there are some doors that God has determined are not going to open. In the same way that Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Oh, Lord, let this thing pass from me. Let me not have to go to the Garden. God, take away the the suffering and the misery that is ahead. And God has decreed, No, it is so critically important. This is the defining moment, moment in all of human history. It has to happen. No matter how you pray, Jesus, this is going to happen. The cross is coming. Humanity depends on this. It has to happen. We run into circumstances in our lives where that's the case. Those are sort of the two extremes, wouldn't you agree? And somewhere between those two extremes are what I believe to be most of the situations in life where God says, I am so ready to unleash my power to meet the need, to bring about healing, to restore what's broken. It's just a matter of whether or not you're going to partner with me and bring the key, bring the faith to bear in that situation. That's what's so thrilling to realize He takes our little weak selves. He takes us and makes us the big determining factor in whether or not his will is accomplished in so many circumstances. It's our faith that makes the difference. Now, I will say this before we move on. It's important to understand that faith grows with experience. And so we need to learn to begin trusting God with the small things. You know, the apostles, they said to the Lord Jesus in Luke 17... Lord, increase our faith. They realize we don't have the kind of faith that you have. Would you grow it into what it needs to be? Jesus understands our need to do that. And there are practical ways for you to help make that happen. Now, one of the practical things that you do is feed your faith by being under sound biblical teaching and spending time in the Word of God. God's Word does truly increase our faith. But one of the most practical things that you can do to increase your faith is to exercise it in smaller things. If you struggle to believe God for big, miraculous stuff, can I just tell you, you probably don't need to leave here today and go to the funeral home and seek to raise the dead. Not likely to work out well. Wouldn't you agree? That is not a good place to start in expressing your faith. Now, God's given you the authority to raise the dead, but that's usually not where you're going to start in expressing your faith. Chances are you're going to walk up to that coffin and go, ain't no way that's happening. That's not where you start. Odds are pretty good. If you're having to learn to develop faith, you probably don't need to run down to Thomas Hospital and try and clean out the ICU with a prayer of faith. Not likely to happen is the beginning point. Start where you are. If you don't have the faith to raise the dead and to heal the sick who are on the edge of death, how about believing God for smaller things? You want to know just one of the most practical ways to learn to grow your faith? Start giving generously. Oh, I mean, it'll test your faith consistently. If you're not a giver, start giving. 
trust God. This isn't life and death, but it is stuff that matters. Trust God with your finances. Trust God enough to begin tithing and do it as a declaration of faith. Don't wait until you can prove it on paper. Just start giving. Start giving the first 10% to God, and every time you do it, say, God, I am trusting you with this. I am making a statement of faith that I believe that when I give the first 10% to you, that you can do more with what's left than I can do with 100%. And God takes that little statement of faith and that act of faith, and he begins to grow faith out of that. Begin to trust God with small sicknesses. If you can't trust God to heal somebody from a critical illness, why don't you pray for a cold? To be healed. Why don't you pray for a sore throat to be healed? Why don't you pray for a cough to go away? Why don't you pray for you know headaches and neck pain and those kinds of things? And watch what God does. Connect what happens next to what you ask for in prayer. Are you with me? Start where you are and let God grow a bigger faith by expressing your faith. I'm reminded, before I move on to the next point, of, of a story that tells us of the importance of faith. You remember the story probably where... Jesus is traveling along and two blind men hear the noise of his entourage passing by and they, they pursue him to a house. And they go in and, and Jesus asks, you know, what do you want me to do for you? And they're, they're crying out to him, you know, help us, son of David. We want to be able to see. And Jesus has a little exchange where he asks them what they believe. And then he says to them in Matthew nine twenty nine, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Now, I want that one line from Jesus to ring in your ears for a long time. According to your faith, let it be done to you. I am so convinced that countless times when we have prayed for things, that God's response has been, according to your faith, let it be done. If you believe me for that, if you really believe me and don't doubt, it's going to happen. But it's going to happen in line with your faith. If you're shaky, if you're, I don't really think this is going to happen, I don't expect God to respond, then what you're going to get is a whole lot of nothing. You're going to get the same thing you've been getting. According to your faith, let it be done to you. Just a reminder that our faith is the key that unleashes God's power. The second truth that that I want to mention to you is that God desires to express His miraculous power through all of His children. Through all of his children. Do you believe that this morning? I thought we were pretty shaky on that. Not three of you believe that. <laughs> Do you believe that God wants to demonstrate miraculous power through all of his children? I do too. The word convinces me of that. Jesus replied in Luke 17 when the disciples had just said, increase our faith. And he said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. It's interesting that in talking about faith, that Jesus didn't say, yeah, it's going to take you a long time and and you're going to have to build up this great faith. What Jesus said is, no, it only takes a teeny little bit of faith. Let's see, what's something really, really small? I know, a seed. What's a really small seed? A mustard seed. That's a tiny one. He said, if you had faith just the size of a mustard seed, you could take authority over things in nature and tell them what to do and they would respond. It's interesting, the example he gives again is where we are speaking in faith and declaring what has to happen. Which is a twist on what most of us are accustomed to doing. 
Only a little bit of faith. When I read that, that passage, I'm reminded of, of a simple truth that I have learned in life. And that is, when you're needing to enlist other people to pray in faith and to really believe God, you know some of the best people that you can enlist to do that? Little kids. It's amazing how God's power gets unleashed oftentimes when little kids pray. Watching my own children at younger ages who just in simple faith prayed believing God for things that I thought were never going to happen. Yeah, that... Here I am, the pastor, and I'm like, that ain't going to happen. And then, you know, I remember watching Whitney just on one particular issue that she was just believing God for something. That I'm thinking, there is no way God's going to do that. I'll, I'll actually tell you one that comes to mind. that You can blow this off if you want to, but I'll go to my grave knowing that she affected this one thing. On a particular year, this sounds so inconsequential. She's, it's the only year of her life that she's ever done this. But having grown up in the Deep South, she had never seen it snow on Christmas. And she, God had been stirring in her life and in the life of a friend of hers about the issue of learning to pray in faith. And so they just began to, to just kind of want to put that into practice. And so they said about the beginning of December, we're just going to ask God just this one year to let it snow on Christmas Day. And I'm thinking, you need to figure out something else to pray for. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, did, I wouldn't dare say that because I didn't want to discourage her faith. But for weeks, I'm thinking, this is going to be rotten. Because she's just got all this expectation. And, and she's just going to be so disappointed on Christmas Day. And so for weeks through the month of December, Whitney's saying, Dad, Amanda and I are praying. And we're believing it is going to snow on Christmas Day. You watch. It's going to happen. Because God answers when we pray. And I'm, I'm just smiling. Going, That's so cool. That's so great. And I'm going, oh, man, this is going to be such a bummer on Christmas Day when it doesn't snow. Well, you know where this story's going. The one time in my life it's ever snowed on Christmas Day was that Christmas. I mean, it's crazy. It does not snow in Fairhope, Alabama, hardly ever on any day of the year, but certainly not in December. That Christmas Day, it snowed. And I'll never forget going out in the front yard and just being reminded how it doesn't take a giant 70-year-old's faith. It just takes a little mustard seed faith, the kind of faith that a child can bring to bear. And it's really interesting that the examples that Jesus loves to give of what can be accomplished in faith, that many of the examples are tied to things in nature that you'll have authority over that. Paul, in speaking of this issue, said, I pray, talking to believers, I pray also that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. He said, this is going to be the big difference maker, and I'm just praying that God will open your eyes, that you'll see that you have this power. It's in all of you. It is all the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and it is in you, and God wants to unleash that. There's a third thing that I've got to mention. And this is the one that seems like the biggest quirk in the whole passage. And it is that personal unforgiveness short circuits the prayer of faith. Understand that when Jesus makes promises about what, he, what God will do in response to our prayers, that there are some specific conditions attached. And he gives one in this passage. At the end of the passage we read today, Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus has just said, you know, believe when you pray and you'll have it. But you better pay attention when a but comes out. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. What he's helping us to see is 
When you come and, and you're bringing your faith, you're putting the key in the door, expecting God's power to be unleashed, Jesus is saying, understand, if you bring unforgiveness into that equation, nothing's going to happen. Your prayer life is just like, it's just bouncing off the ceiling. Why is that? What does that have to do with anything? What does forgiveness have to do with anything? You've got to understand this about prayer. Prayer was not first designed so that you could get the stuff that you want to get. That is not the point of prayer. That's the secondary issue. The point of prayer was always and is always first and foremost about creating communion. Communion between us and God. An intimate connection between us and God. And God isn't just calling us into communion with himself, but into communion with his entire family. And any time there is something that we're holding on to that would interrupt that communion, and unforgiveness always does that. God will just go, breaks your own. We're not going to make any of this stuff happen. We're not going to move forward. I'm going to make sure you understand that you just ran full speed into a door that you thought was about to swing open, and bang, you just bounced off the front of it. I'll never forget one night, our neighbors, just about a block or block and a half away, knew that the husband was out of town, the wife was home alone, and so we had been asked, you know, we just keep an eye on things, listen out for her if there's a problem, and she called in the middle of the night, I mean, it was one of those, in a, in a deep sleep, and just got that call, and the first thing was, there's, it's the neighbor calling, and she's saying, there's somebody in the house. I can't remember getting out of bed can't remember putting any clothes on. All I can remember is just sprinting across. And the last word that I had gotten was that she was going to get to the front door and unlock the front door. And so I'm running as fast as I can across the neighborhood. And I'm thinking, I don't know who's in this house. I don't know the best way to do this. So I'm just going to run in like the SWAT team just as fast as I can. So I have planned it. I have never broken stride. I've got my pistol in my hand. I am Barney Fife. I'm coming, you know, got my bullet out of my pocket. And I am, so I go towards, just without stopping, I'm like, I'm just going to hit that door and just run straight in. And so I run to the door and I I turn the knob as I'm trying to run through it. She had never made it to it to unlock it. I bounced off that door like you would not believe. It knocked me silly. That moment of trying to run through a locked door is the equivalent of what happens to you in prayer when you have held on to unforgiveness and you think that's not going to matter because I'm believing God and I'm praying in faith and I'm reading the Bible and I'm going to church and I'm just going to keep on running through life. God's going to let you bounce off of a locked door as a wake-up call to go, realize there's something going on here that you've got to deal with because... The primary issue is always that you be right with God and right with the people around you. It's interesting to note that Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 7 to husbands, In the same way, you husbands, you must give honor to your wives. Treat her as you, sh- as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. You see, when we're not right with one another, we can't be right with God. And our prayer life just is like running into that locked door. Bam! You just bounce off. David said in Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You see, sin and unforgiveness, those things will become a total roadblock to us seeing God respond to our prayers in faith.
And then that brings us to the fourth and final thing that I'll say today, and it is this. That God's children can boldly take authority and call forth the impossible, just as Jesus did. In Matthew seventeen twenty, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if your faith is as big as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. All things will be possible for you. Jesus said this, this teaching again and again and again. And I get it that at this point, there are probably still a lot of us in the room, a lot of people listening online, who are thinking, but I'm not there. Something just isn't working for me. It's not clicking. I felt that a lot in my life. I want to share with you what's made all the difference for me. What has transformed my prayer life. What has transformed my, my faith life. And it's just such a very simple realization with a profound impact. And it is the realization that I am fully a child of God. And I enjoy all of the benefits that a full-fledged child of God enjoys. Paul said in Romans eight sixteen and 17, God's Spirit joins Himself to our spirits to declare that we are God's children. Say that with me. We are God's children. And since we are His children, I want you to get this. If you've zoned out, zone back in for this. Since we are His children, we will possess the blessings that He keeps for His people. That's cool. Every one of His kids, we are going to possess the blessings that He reserved just for His children. Oh, but that is not the end. And we will also possess with Christ what God has kept for Him. Did you hear that? When you got adopted into God's family and He made you a son, He made you a daughter, He said, all the things that I store up as the inheritance that a son and daughter is supposed to get, you get. You get all of that. But what I want you to understand, it's not just sort of this generic package, yeah, here's the consolation prize for all of my adopted kids. No, He said, I want you to understand, we also possess everything that God ever held on to saying, hey, when Jesus has finished His work on earth, this is what I'm going to give to Jesus. And oh, by the way, Everything that Jesus gets, you get. Because just as much as Jesus is a son, you're a son, you're a daughter, you get everything Jesus gets. Wow. That's what the scripture means when it says you're a joint heir with Jesus. God has reserved for you everything he reserved for Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3, speaking only to to the church, you are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. Understanding this isn't just to everybody in creation. John said in John 1.12, yet to as many as received him, Jesus, to those who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become what? The children of God. So he says, you're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who are baptized, baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That, that's significant. Because when we're all caught up in thinking, oh man, I'm just so covered in sin and God just sees my sin. He wouldn't do anything big for me. No, it says because you're in Christ, you're now clothed in Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at you and go, oh, that Patty Bishop, whew, what a mess her life is. And old Harry over here, I don't know that I could do much with him. It's Cindy, man, she's got her own stuff. That's not how God looks at you. God looks at Patty and goes, 
It is amazing how much Patty looks like Jesus. I just see all of Jesus' righteousness and character. And when I look at Harry, I see the love of Jesus. And in Cindy, I absolutely see Jesus made over into a woman. It is a beautiful thing. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So now if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We as Gentiles in the 21st century read that and go, what? What's the whole deal about being Abraham's descendants? Look, that's just the Bible way of saying you're as in as it gets. In the first century, in a Jewish context, the ones who knew that they were loved by God were Abraham's descendants. We are real Jews. We have Abraham as our father. He's the father of the faith. We are in. We are accepted. And Paul is saying, you better understand, if you have faith in Jesus, that's what gets you as in as in can be. You are Abraham's descendants. You are heirs of everything anybody could be an heir of. According to the promise, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if you are his child, then you are also an heir through God. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you as a son or daughter of God. You want to know how big a deal that is? When Jesus had finished his work on the cross, when he had been raised from the dead and he is about to return to heaven, he is about to speak the words of the Great Commission and he opens by saying, All authority, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me, now you go. You know why he could say, now you go? Because he's saying, I'm giving it to you. Everything that was reserved for me is now poured out on me. I have won the victory. I've conquered death. I've conquered sin. I've conquered the kingdom of darkness. I have all authority. I have authority over sickness. I have authority over the demonic. I have authority over life and death. I have authority over nature. A storm comes that threatens our lives. I don't go, oh God, what are we going to do? I stand up and say, shut up. Peace be still. And all is quiet. That's authority. That is divine authority. And God says, all that was reserved for Jesus, everything that the Son of God gets, I make you a son of God. I make you a daughter of God. And you receive the same authority that Jesus has. Jesus says, it's all mine. Now you go because it's all yours. Wow. I want to tell you the thing that has just made this so much more real in my life. The Spirit of God has spoken to me and just said, Part of what's been wrong in your life is you have accepted that you're a son of God, but in your mind you have believed that you're a stepson. And the problem with being a stepchild is you always struggle with feeling like you were just part of a package deal. As a stepchild, you're so prone to think of that step parent. You may like me. But it never was that you really loved me or wanted me. You loved my parent. And you just got me as a part of a package deal. And the Spirit of God has just spoken so deeply in my heart to say, you've gone through your life believing that I've accepted you, but only as a part of a package deal. Not because I really loved you, but because I've made these promises to all who believe. And there are some people out there who live full of faith and they love a righteous life and they make a difference for the kingdom. And they are loved and treated as sons of, of God. And you've been kind of this, you know, junior person in all of this. You've sort of been the stepson in this. And what God has said is it's not because of anything that I've done. It's because of what your heart has believed.
that you've never believed that what belongs to Jesus belongs to you. And the simple word that the Spirit of God has whispered in my heart day after day after day for months is, You're a son. You're a son of mine as much as Jesus is my son. And everything that Jesus possesses, you now possess. Walk in it. Live in it. Speak it. For so much of my life, if you hadn't figured it out, I didn't grow up in a charismatic church. I grew up in a good Baptist church where we made sure we didn't let anything get out of control. And I would listen to my charismatic brethren, and though there were things that I admired about them, it just offended me to hear them when they would take authority, and when they would speak with authority, and when they would call forth things in the realm of of the miraculous, the supernatural. And I would think, who do you think you are? You talk like you're Jesus. And it's so funny how far God has brought me to change my thinking, to go, the problem is who you think you are. You think you're my stepchild. And I've made you my child just as much as Jesus is. And so when you walk into a situation, stop praying these mamby-pamby prayers that are like, Oh, I'm not sure, God, if it be your will. You do what Jesus would do. How did Jesus minister? He walked in. He assessed the situation. He had a heart that was open to what does the Father want to do here. And then he declared it in faith. How different does that look? About as different as night and day. I was thinking this morning as I was having my prayer time and preparing and remembering that it was this month a year ago that we buried our dear friend Nails, who always sat here on the on the front row. Nails had more spirit than belonged in one seventy year old body. He he just he had to jump, he had to dance, he, he loved Jesus so much. He lived as full of faith as anybody that I know of. And yet Nails struggled with a lot of physical infirmity, a lot of demonic attacks, a lot of things. And I'm not sharing anything that's confidential. He, he would freely tell you. It's just, you know, headaches and heart issues and, and spiritual attacks. And he had a faith that did move mountains. I mean, he had a faith that the miraculous was unleashed so many times. But as is often the case in his own life, he would have situations where he'd hit a wall and where he'd be praying in faith and yet wouldn't see relief for what was going on with him. And I remember the, you know, when the first time Nels called me up and, and said, Look, I, I need you to stand with me in prayer against this thing. And, and I'm, I have a headache. This is a crushing headache. I can't function. And I've prayed and, and nothing will happen. And I've anointed myself and I've taken communion. And, and I just I can't function. This headache is so bad. And I need for you to agree with me in faith. And there's a part of me in that moment that's going... Well, dang, man, if you can't make it happen, I don't know what you expect me to do. <laughs> real, real full of faith moment. And yet, in that moment, hearing my brother's faith, something just transferred over. Faith began to well up in me. And he said, just pray in faith for me. And I began to pray in faith. And it's like I was able to borrow his faith in that moment, which, by the way, happens very frequently. And as we prayed together, boy, there's something coming out of me that I didn't know was there. And by the time we got done praying, he goes, wow, thanks. It's gone. That did it. Headache's gone. And I'm thinking, okay, that's just kind of weird. I'm not used to that happening. Next time I see him on Sunday, thanks for praying with me the other day. That, that headache had been awful for days. And the moment you prayed, it was gone and it's never come back. I'm thinking, wow, not used to that. 
I can't tell you how many times Nels got up with me over the course of the next couple of years when there would be a physical ailment or a spiritual attack. And he would just say, I can't get any relief. I can't get any break. Every single time he and I agreed together in prayer, I mean in that moment, God gave exactly what was asked for. I was not accustomed to that at all. Part of me is going, what is going on here? Because I've prayed for plenty of people that didn't get well. I've prayed for people who died. My track record is not good. Every time I prayed with Nels for something, God did it. And I don't mean in a few hours. He did it in that moment. Well, the crazy thing began to spring out of that. As I began to pray for other people, I began to see other people get healed. Have God move. Have God touch them in that moment. And I realized it kind of went back to a first moment of borrowing the faith of a brother. To believe God to move in that moment. Don't mistake the point in anything that I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that, that I've got some magic or some power that you don't possess. I, I'm just telling you that that power rests in all of us. God's just inviting us to trust Him and to watch Him work. And to declare in faith that we believe that God is about to act. I'll tell you one of the significant things that has changed, and with this I'm done, is coming to the realization that we are the children of God and that we should do exactly what Jesus would do is to realize that Jesus in each of these passages said, speak to the mountain and tell the mountain to be cast into the sea. Speak to the mulberry tree, tell it to be uprooted and moved. But that didn't sound anything like the way I've ever prayed. It sounded like my charismatic friends that I was always freaked out by going, who are you to speak with that kind of authority? Only Jesus does that. And the thing that God's been showing me is a part of a declaration of faith is that there are many times you need to speak to the issue. Jesus spoke to things as though they were alive. We'll talk about that more on another day. It's an intriguing thought in the scriptures. But he would, I mean, he taught us, speak to that tree, speak to that mountain, speak to that obstacle. And one of the things that God has been showing me is, when you pray for sickness, yes, it's appropriate to ask for me to act. But do what Jesus would do. You are Jesus in that situation. You have the Spirit of Christ. Speak to that. If Jesus would speak to that illness or to that demonic oppression and say, I take authority over you. And in Jesus' name and with His power, I tell you, you've got to leave now. Go. Get out. I'm learning to walk in authority with sickness. And to say to cancer, I take authority over you. Cancer, you have to die. Cancer, shrivel up and die. Depression, you have to go. Depression, die and be gone in Jesus' name. Sound a little weird? feels a little weird when you start doing it. But I'll tell you what it does sound like. It sounds like the kind of authority that Jesus and the apostles carried. It's the kind of authority that we're supposed to walk in. You know, the really cool thing about that is I'm beginning to see more and more of God moving in response to that declaration of faith. As you take authority and say to this headache, I take authority over you. You've got to leave. You're, you're out of here in Jesus' name. If you have faith in Christ, just saving faith in Christ, you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And all that God reserves for his children is reserved for you. And all that's reserved for his son, Jesus, 
is held for you to now inherit and possess. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, I pray today for a very simple thing. I pray that today you would give gifts of faith across this room and in the hearts and lives of people who are watching and listening online. Would you give us the faith to believe you, to do the impossible, to move what's unmovable, to fix what's unfixable. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.